Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School. Here, you'll get fresh insight from the people at the very top of the tech companies who make the products we love. Remember, you can learn product management live online. Visit productschool.com to discover our new certificate path. There, you can also join the world's largest community of PMs and network with the leaders from these podcasts at our online events. There's something happening almost every day. Hello, everyone. Uh, really excited to be speaking with you today about using data to bridge your product and engineering teams. I've been leading engineering teams for uh, about 10 years now, working with a variety of product managers over that time. So I'm really excited to share some of the lessons that I've learned. So first, just a little bit about me. I'm David. I lead engineering here at Heap. Before I joined Heap, I led engineering at a company called Stack Overflow, where I joined early on, employee number seven, uh, when we really had no product management, no design, uh, and a very small engineering team. And so I, I really got to help build uh, from the ground up product and design practices as we grew that team from seven to 100. More recently, uh, I joined Heap at a really exciting point in our company's growth. Uh, we've been working on continuing to grow and refine how product and engineering work together. So what's Heap? Uh, Heap is an analytics platform that helps product managers and others craft great digital experiences and turn their data into insight and action. Uh, this is a topic I was really passionate about even before I joined Heap because I've really seen firsthand how the right data and insights can transform how a team operates. So this isn't a sales pitch. My goal today is not to sell you on the product. I'm here really to talk more generally about how to use data to help product and engineering teams work together more effectively. So in your typical product team, how are decisions usually made? Uh, you've probably heard of the term hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. This is uh, one of the most common ways that decisions get made by default. Whoever gets paid the most wins. Uh, this can be the executive who swoops in and makes the decision for the team uh, or a director or a product leader who uh, comes in and sets the roadmap based on their own expert opinions and really isn't interested in hearing what the team has to say. Um, there's a related decision-making animal you might not have heard of, but it's one I think about a lot, and that's the zebra. Uh, zero evidence, but really arrogant. Uh, I see this all the time uh, in tech companies, especially, uh, where it's not necessarily the highest paid person in the room. It's just the loudest and most arrogant. Uh, this can be an engineer who says, this will never work. It won't scale. We can't do that. Uh, it can be a PM who says people won't ever use this without any evidence, uh, or a designer who says this is the most intuitive UX, just trust me. And this is really the, the default state of a product team. Uh, you don't have to be special to fall into one of these states. Uh, it feels a lot like this, where a bunch of people are pulling in different directions. Engineers want to spend more time on the technology. Designers want to improve the UX. Uh, outside stakeholders like sales and marketing have their own opinions and their own needs, uh, and never mind the customers. So how do you create alignment between those different groups? Uh, it's easy to just say, use the data. But what I've seen is that data can be just as confusing as anything else. It's actually really easy to present different pieces of contradictory information uh, that pull you in different directions, depending on how you interpret them. So what I've seen is you really have to go a level beyond just use data to really understand the behaviors that separate um, good teams from great teams. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the PM. So that's what I want to focus on. What are some of the behaviors that distinguish uh, pretty good PMs from really great ones? Um, I've identified a few that I think are, are key behavioral changes that can really transform how you work with your engineering teams. Uh, 
So good PMs um, are, are really great at explaining what to build. Um, they celebrate with the team whenever we launch. Um, and they accept that there's a certain amount of inherent complexity in everything that we do. This is fine. This is you know how a lot of PMs operate. The question for me is, as I've gone through my career, what really separates this from the really great PMs? And I think about these things. Great PMs don't just focus on what we're building. They take the time to explain why we're building it. They don't just celebrate launches. They celebrate impact and orient the team around that. And they don't accept com uh, complexity. They push for simplicity at all levels. Um, but really what I'm focused on here is, is around uh, metrics and guiding the team. So let's break each of these areas down. First of all, great PMs explain the why. This is far and away my number one piece of advice for PMs working with engineers. Uh, really actually goes beyond just engineering. This is the number one piece of advice for leading uh, any kind of organization or team is that great leaders align their teams around the why. And this is especially important with engineers. Um, engineers are in our heart problem solvers. If you give us a good problem, we'll help you solve it. If you just give us the solution, we can't identify the edge cases, propose alternatives, uh, help you think through trade-offs. So it's really important that you lead with what's the problem you're trying to solve and really bring the engineering team as close to the problem as you can. Great PMs are, uh, share context around the problems. They bring the team customer and user stories. They bring in relevant research and data. Uh, they share customer interviews uh, or even bring engineers to visit customers and hear the feedback firsthand. All of this builds up the team's awareness of the problems that we're solving uh, and the outcomes we're trying to achieve. Once you've explained the outcome you're after, then you can start to talk about what are your hypotheses about how to do it. And it's important to emphasize with your team that these are hypotheses. They're, um, they're ideas that we can test to see if they're actually going to work. They're not blind assertions about this is the only way to solve the problem. And framing it as a hypothesis opens it up as a conversation with the team about this is our best uh, guess about how to solve it but it's not the only way to solve it. And so we're open to other ideas. Most importantly, we need to align around how we're going to measure success. So if we're going to have a collaborative conversation about how we can solve this problem, we need to know what the definition of success is. And this is where your metrics start to come in. We wanna know what does it mean to see success? Um, what's the impact that we're looking for on this project? And then connect it back to the business. Why does this matter to the business? This is something that I think a lot of PMs miss because it's obvious to them. It's obvious to them how if we solve this customer problem, um, if we fill in this gap in our feet in our feature lineup, um, then obviously that's going to be good for the business in these ways. But with engineers and with anyone, it's really helpful to to close that loop, connect the dots back to why this matters to the business. What's the business impact we're expecting to see? Um, don't just leave that implicit. Really call that out and make it explicit. What this does is it transforms the conversation with the team from I wanna build this feature to help me solve this problem. You get the engineers working with you to solve the problem together. We are agreed on what problem we're solving and we agree on how we're gonna measure success. And now we can collaborate on the best way to solve it. So how do you actually make this part of your culture? Uh, it's easy to say this, but are, 
it's it's useful to have tools and processes that really turn this into something you do that just becomes a muscle over and over again. So at Heap, we have a couple tools that we use uh, and that we've made available um, for, for anyone to copy from and learn from. They're not the only way to do this, but they're what we've come up with and we found to be really effective. So the first tool is the problem brief. Um, you can download it uh, at our website here. And all it is is a simple template that helps you outline uh, what's the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, it calls out specifically the hypothesis that you're making, uh, the metrics that you're going to use to track, and the business impact that you expect to see. And what, one of the things I really love about it is that you go through this template, um, which is, I think, only about four pages, and you fill out the different areas, and then you come back to the first page, and you call out these three top things as the front page, the first thing that anybody reads. And so that really centers the conversation uh, whenever uh, you share this with engineering, share this with other teams uh, in the company, it centers everyone on the problem that we're solving and how we're framing it as a set of hypotheses that should lead to a business impact and how we're going to measure it. The second tool uh, is a design brief. So this is how we separate um, understanding the problem from actually starting to work on the solution. So we make sure that we've got the product brief, the problem brief before we do the design brief. Uh, the design brief is where we start to actually explore solutions. Um, and this is specifically for us, a product, uh, a process led by the design team um, where uh, they start to outline uh, the behaviors of the product, um, the assumptions that they're making, the uh, design constraints that they're operating under and the alternatives that they considered. Uh, the alternatives are really one of my favorite parts of this whole process because the alternatives are your chance to really show how you thought through the problem. Um, what other things did you think of? Uh, what did you rule out and why? Um, this is really useful for when you're presenting a design or presenting an idea, uh, you're going to get lots of people who say, well, what about this? What about that? Did you think about this? And so when you can really break down your alternatives, um, you can really, again, align people around. There are multiple ways to solve this problem. We considered alternatives. We're going with this one um, for these reasons, but there are other options that we considered and that we might even circle back to as we learn more. So uh, this is how we at Heap uh, orient ourselves around explaining the why to make sure that that's the first step in a new project. The second thing, uh, bring it back to behaviors of great PMs. The second behavior is celebrating impact. It's so easy to get on the launch treadmill. Um, you know you're on the launch treadmill when your team spends month after month launching features, and somehow you don't ever seem to have the time to go back and really learn what worked and what didn't. There's always a next feature that needs to be started right away, a customer problem that's urgent, a bug that needs to be fixed, and we just spent all this time getting to launch. Um, surely now it's time to start moving on to the next exciting thing. This is something that I think just about every team that I've ever worked with or been on has struggled with. Uh, it's, it takes a lot of work to get to that launch moment. And it's natural and actually important for the team to celebrate those launches. You just can't lose sight of the fact that the launch isn't what matters. What matters is the impact that you're going to have. The message that I try to convey to my team and that I think great PMs convey to their teams is that launching doesn't mean that we're done. The feature, the product, the change that we're making isn't done until we're sure it's having the business impact that we're targeting. What this does is when you orient your team around the impact that you expect to have, which you outlined as part of defining your, your problem, you orient your team around that impact and it changes the thinking. It changes the thinking from just get this thing out the door as quickly as possible um, and then move on to the next thing 
it shifts the team to thinking about, again, putting the customer and the business uh, need front and center and uh, sets an expectation that if we didn't get the impact that we need, we're going to come back to this and keep working on it. Of course, there's a time when you need to uh, give up on a project and move on to the next thing because uh, it's just not working. But um, building this idea of focus on impact into your process uh, is so important to building an effective product team. Um, this is something, this focus on impact is something I really learned at my last company. Um, so to talk, tell a story there. Um, as I mentioned before I joined Heap, I led engineering at Stack Overflow. Uh, at Stack Overflow, uh, we learned humility the hard way uh, by assuming we knew what would work and then learning that it's not that simple. Stack Overflow is a website uh, for programmers to ask and answer each other's questions. Today, there are over 20 million questions that have been asked on Stack Overflow. One of the central features is the homepage feed, um, which is much like the homepage feed on any social app that you're familiar with, except that the goal here isn't to sur surface just interesting content. It's to surface questions that you might be able to answer. So in the early days in the company, a team I was working with took on the project of trying to improve the algorithm that surfaces questions that you might be able to answer on the homepage. Uh, we had a clear metric. Um, we wanted to track the number of questions that get clicked from the homepage and then are answered by a user. Um, we thought it would be pretty simple. Um, one thing we identified early on was that there are a lot of old unanswered questions uh, that have been sitting around for a while. And so what if we just uh, boost those onto the homepage more often? Um, surely by showing more old unanswered questions, we'll get those questions answered and we'll see this answer rate go up. Uh, the result was actually the exact opposite. Uh, we shipped this uh, algorithm, we A-B tested it, and it had the opposite effect. Answer rate went down. Uh, as we dug in, what we realized was that questions that have been sitting around for a long time without an answer um, uh, tend to have a reason that they're not answered. Uh, it turns out that those questions are really hard, um, or maybe they're missing essential information. Uh, what's happened is the easy questions have been answered. And so the ones that are sitting unanswered for a long time are, are unanswerable for some reason. And so by boosting those to the homepage, we actually saw them get clicked, but we didn't see them uh, get answered because people would click, read them, not know how to answer them, and then bounce away. So um, this is just one example, but this kind of thing happened all the time. We would go in with something we thought would be a quick win, quick fix, um, we'll ship this and we'll see uh, a great result and move on to the next thing. And we learned over and over again that it's not that simple. The key was that because we were measuring the impact and not just measuring whether we shipped, we actually learned something and were able to iterate and make improvement and eventually get to the result that we wanted to get to. So at Heap, we've turned this into a part of the culture um, and created another tool um, around this. It's what we call the after action report. Like the others, it's a, a simple template that we require after every major project um, that starts by reiterating well, what we shipped and why, uh, and then and, and the resources we invested into it, just to set some of the context, uh, and then dives down into what was our hypothesis, what measurable results did we see, and what are our next steps. So this after action report creates a checkpoint after a project ships where we make sure that we are going back and looking at what was the impact we expected um, and what result did we see? And it, it becomes a really good uh, a gut check 
for teams, for product managers to actually force themselves to go back and look at the impact and make sure that we saw the impact that we were uh, hoping for. So great PMs explain the why, they celebrate impact. Uh, and the last behavior is they push for simplicity. Great PMs don't just accept complex complexity, they push for simplicity. I think this is actually um, broadly true and really speaks to something about the nature of a PM. Uh, PMs are in some ways uh, complexity taming uh, uh, leads on the team. Their job is to come in and tame the complexity of different business problems, market context, organizational pressures, um, different stakeholders and constituents expecting different things. They have to tame that complexity and turn it into something the team can digest. This is uh, true for a, a wide variety of things, um, but one of the most important ways that PMs can do this is by setting really clear and simple metrics and goals for the team to orient itself around. Um, I've seen teams uh, really struggle to, uh, to, to set simple, uh, clear, memorable metrics because it's, it's really easy. It takes work. It's hard to identify the right metrics. Um, it's easy to tie yourself in knots, trying to come up with the perfect KPIs, um, adding more and more complexity to try to make sure you're accounting for edge cases, um, adding more metrics to make sure we're tracking different things. And the result is that teams can get uh, kind of lost in the dashboards. As a PM, it is definitely your job to be on top of all of those metrics. I'm not saying that it's not important to have those metrics. PMs need to be on top of uh, all, all the different ways to dive into the data and to understand usage so that you can drill down when there's something that seems off uh, to really understand it and take action on it. But for the team, for leading the team, you need to be able to distill those key metrics and those reports into something that is really simple and easy for the team to digest. A few key metrics that the team can focus on, um, remember, and review over and over again to, to reset and orient our thinking. Uh, so. An example of that, um, let's say you're looking at something like new trials. Um, this is something that we've been looking at at Heap. Um, it's easy to get lost in all of the different uh, funnels in the ways that trials get created. Uh, it's easy to get lost in the complexities of different use cases. But if you can really boil it down to a few key metrics, for example, number of new trials created, uh, your overall trial conversion rate, um, your overall uh, number of accounts with um, say N interactions per month. These are the kind of metrics that become uh, what our head of product at Heap calls fingertip metrics. They're metrics that are always at your fingertips, always at the, team, the, the tip of the team's tongue that if you stop one of them in the hallway and ask them, what are your key goals? What are your key metrics? They'll be able to immediately call them up. Um, and anyone who looks at these can understand what they mean. And most importantly, um, start to take action. So all of these metrics, if I gave that to you as a PM or even an engineer on the team, they should be able to look at that metric and immediately start to generate ideas for what we could do to move that. If I say we want to uh, create, we want to uh, increase the number of new trials created this quarter. There's lots of different ideas that the team can generate um, and that you can source for how to do that. So these are not just simple and memorable metrics, they're actionable metrics. They're things that you can actually take back to the team and say, okay, we wanna move this and here's how we're going to move it. And simple doesn't have to mean less powerful. Uh, this is something that we recently relearned at Heap. So 
uh, at Heap, a few months ago, one of our data scientists did sort of a meta-analysis of our product metrics. Uh, the key question they were trying to ask is, which of the all the different metrics that we track is the best predictor of retention? Uh, a, a customer coming back and renewing their account. Um, so uh, this is this is a good example of sort of looking for leading versus lagging indicators. So retention is a really important number, but it's hard to operationalize on a team because it takes so long. Um, especially if you're a SaaS business where customers might only renew once a year uh, or even less. Uh, just trying to operate the team on a metric like retention is really hard. So what you want is a leading metric that is a good predictor of that. So uh, a data scientist ran an analysis of that. They looked at about 30 different metrics that we use uh, that we could consider different ways of formulating those metrics um, and basically did a statistical analysis on which of those are most predictive of whether a customer is going to renew or not. Uh, the main learning was that the simple metric of how many people run a query every month and heap any query is the best predictor. That's a really powerful realization because it shows that we don't need a more complicated metric. We don't, uh, they, they broke this down by different customer segments and it turned out that the same metric broadly holds across different customer segments. Surprisingly, five monthly querying users was a relevant metric, whether you're a small um, SMB company or a big enterprise. Uh, so this turns out to be a really simple, powerful metric that we can now take back to the team, orient the team around and say, okay, how do we get more accounts uh, up to and across that threshold of five different users in a month come in and run a query? Um, obviously, there are other metrics that we want to track. That's not the only thing that matters in Heap, but this is a, a, a simple, memorable, actionable metric that, that we can orient teams around. So bringing it back to uh, PM behaviors, uh, there's really three core changes that I think can help separate uh, a good PM from a great PM and bring together product and engineering so it feels like people are operating on the same team, solving problems together. Those changes are shift from uh, coming to your team with solutions uh, and come to them with problems. Don't just explain what to build, explain why we're building it. Um, don't just celebrate launches, celebrate impact. Always call attention back to the customer, the, the business, um, the user, the overall impact that we're having. And then finally, don't just accept complexity. Push for simplicity. Do the work to uh, tell a really simple, clear, concise story with your metrics that you can orient your team around. Simple, memorable, actionable metrics. Thanks so much for listening. Any of the resources I referenced here, uh, you can just go to heap.io slash product school. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the product podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com. <laughs>